This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Thank you so much for coming out here this evening to the Human Nature Lecture Series. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the Australian Museum stands. They're the ancestral lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. Um, and I'd also like to welcome you to the sixth of our nine talks in the inaugural Human Nature Lecture Series, uh, which is a landmark series that marks the collaboration of four major Sydney universities with the Australian Museum and with academics from all over Australia and around the world who are all leaders in the environmental humanities. The Australian Museum's collection provides a, a record of the environmental and cultural histories of the Australian and Pacific regions. And together with its ongoing research, the museum informs and promotes understanding of some of the most pressing environmental and social challenges in our region, including the loss of biodiversity, a changing climate, and the assertion of cultural identity. I really believe that the museum is a place where the past meets the future and where understanding is inspired by the research of our scientists and cultural specialists, by our exhibitions and of course by events just like this. Um, through this lecture series we really strive to investigate and communicate the relationship between people, culture and the natural environment. So thank you for coming tonight. I hope you'll enjoy us for the final third of the series still to come. Three more terrific speakers still to come um, and tonight's lecture will also be available via the AM podcast. Um, but to introduce our very special guest this evening I'd like to hand over to Tom Van Doren, Associate Professor in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. Thanks Tom. Thank you, thanks very much and thank you all for coming. Um, so it's a real pleasure to have the opportunity to introduce Kate Sanderlands tonight. Kate is Professor of Environmental Studies at York University. Can you hear me? I'm told I don't stand. Um, so Kate is Professor of Environmental Studies at York University in Canada. Her research is situated in the interdisciplinary environmental humanities, bringing eco-criticism into dialogue with cultural studies and working queer, trans and feminist theory. Professor Sandlands is one of the world's leading scholars in these areas. Her work has played a key role in exploring the intersections between queer and environmental issues, literatures and concerns, shaping our understandings of the many complex interplays between these areas of life and scholarship. In 2010, she co-edited the field-defining text in the area, Queer Ecologies with Bruce Erickson. Professor Sandlands is also the author of several important books, including The Good-Natured Feminist, Ecofeminism and the Quest for Democracy. In recent years, her work has taken a strong turn towards the botanical, exploring questions of multi-species cohabitation in the context of ongoing processes of colonization, globalization, and their, and their associated patterns of environmental destruction. These questions are the focus of one of her current books in process, the provocatively titled Plantasmagoria, Plants and the Politics of Urban Habitat. So tonight, Professor Sanderlands will be presenting to us from this plant-focused work on the topic of feminist botany for the age of man. Please join me in welcoming her. 
Before I begin, I would also like to acknowledge with gratitude and pay respect to the traditional owners and caretakers of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, of, um, uh, of whom I'm very, uh, very honored to be a guest today. Um, I, am also, I would also like to thank the Australian Museum, the University of Sydney, the University of New South Wales, Western Sydney University, and Macquarie University for sponsoring uh, this wonderful series. I wish I could have been here for all of the talks. Uh, and I'm particularly grateful to Tom Van Duren and also to Estrida Neimanis uh, from the Sydney Environmental Institute who have been my hosts. Oops, sorry. Trust me to hit the wrong button. Thank you. Uh, today I'd like to uh, to give a talk that is in um, uh, a more performative mode. Um, it's in five. It is in five sections. I would like to talk about a little bit about this this idea of the Anthropocene, um, which I prefer to call the Age of Man. Uh, I would like to uh, uh, do a little segue into a more sort of a more grassroots, quite literally plant-based. Um, reflection on uh, on a garden that I participate in in Toronto, Ontario, where I live part of my life in Canada. Uh, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about some historical vegetal feminist entanglements, uh, and then another segue into a more plant-based a more plant-based piece, uh, which is about Scotch broom, um, which is a, a very uh, um, notorious species on the west coast of Canada. Uh, I chose clematis and scotch broom because I understand that they both have a presence in Australia. Um, at least uh, there's, there, are, there are certain bits of Australia that seem to be very vexed by scotch broom as well. Um, so I figured it was a, a conversational plant. Uh, and then I'd like to wrap it up with a very uh, short, uh, a, a very short series of reflections on what it means to to think about uh, feminist botany in this age of man. Although the term Anthropocene was coined by biologist Eugene Sturmer in the in the early 1980s. The person generally held responsible for its public currency is Paul Crutzen, a Dutch atmospheric chemist whose work on the hole in the ozone layer won him a Nobel Prize in 1995. The term is daring. It names human beings, anthropos, as a geological force, meaning that human activity in the form of colonization, industrialization, resource extraction, agricultural intensification, and urbanization has registered in and on the earth in a way that physically marks the present moment as no longer part of the Holocene. Although the International Commission on Stratigraphy has not yet formally designated the Anthropocene as a distinct geological epoch, the concept has gained a lot of traction as a way of dramatizing the immense impact that human beings have had on the planet, impacts that will persist in the geological record. Evidence of fossil fuel, combustion, climate change, and biodiversity loss preserved in marine lakes and sediments, the persistence of plastics and trace elements in ice sheets, 
the fossilized, land-filled bones of trillions of chickens. The precise beginning point of this epoch, the so-called golden spike, is subject to much debate. Is it the first detonation of a nuclear weapon in 1945? Is it the Industrial Revolution, which saw, among other things, exponential expansion of the extraction and deployment of fossil fuels? Is it the Neolithic Revolution, with its development of sedentary agriculture and significant accompanying increases in human population, social complexity, and species domestication for human ends? The story we tell about the, anthrop about the anthropogenic past is significant. But no matter where in the geologic past the golden spike gets driven, the term Anthropocene gives lithic solidity to widespread anxiety about the present and future of the planet. Beyond critical resource depletions, beyond mass species manipulations and extinctions, and even beyond climate change, the Anthropocene seems to name the present moment as a crisis of the Earth itself. Feminist thinkers, however, have taken issue with the idea of the Anthropocene almost since its first public use. To name the human as a geological force is to mask the fact that not all humans share equal responsibility for the current course of change. Moreover, the processes of industrialization, colonization, urbanization, domestication, and extractivism that lie at the heart of the Anthropocene are clearly bound up with issues of gender, race, class, and colony. At one level, failure to name the epochal force more precisely takes critical attention away from the specific activities and relations that are the largest engines of planetary ruination. Sociologist Jason Moore has a result suggested the term capitalocene as a considerably more accurate reflection of the fact that the specific regime that is capitalism should be singled out for its transformative effects, a form of global economic and social organization in which the planet and its human and more than human inhabitants are arranged and exploited primarily in order to maximize wealth and power for the few. At another level, as anthropologist Anna Singh has pointed out, the monolithic human behind the Anthropocene is really just another version of the white male colonizing modernist man that is a large part of the problem in the first place. This man fashions himself as separate from and over and above a feminized nature that comes to be treated as nothing but a universe of animate, inanimate raw materials whose sole purpose on earth is to fuel his interests. And this man needs to be displaced in any attempt to grapple with the social, economic, and ecological relations that have brought the earth to its current epochal crisis. As philosopher Sylvia Winter argues, this very Western bourgeois man is an overrepresentation that actively conceals his very violent acquisition of the term human under a veneer of universality painted in historical layers of theology, evolutionary theory, and perhaps now even geology. That this same ethnoclass, as she calls it, is now folding all humans into the destructive anthropos is not surprising, as she wrote presciently 15 years ago. 
our present struggles with respect to race, class, gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, struggles over the environment, global warming, severe climate change, the sharply unequal distribution of the, Earth res the Earth's resources. These are all differing facets of the central ethnoclass man versus human struggle. Taken together, these critiques suggest that a feminist perspective on the Anthropocene, perhaps more accurately named the Manthropocene, should emphasize the fact that gender, race, class, and colonialism are both structurally and conceptually part of the geologically scaled problem. How man treats nature and how capitalism metabolizes the more than human world on which it depends cannot be separated from the inequitable and exploitative social relations on which man and capital both rely. Feminist thinkers of many varieties have, in fact, been saying these sorts of things for quite some time, including Hannah Gatsby. Ecofeminists, for example, starting about the same time as Sturmer named the Anthropocene, have pointed out connections between the patriarchal, capitalist, imperialist exploitation of the more than human world and the oppression of women, people of color, and indigenous people. More recent feminist thought has, moreover, effectively challenged the exceptionalist conceits of humanism, especially the idea that this man is both quantitatively and qualitatively different from the matter of the rest of the world. My talk today will not solve the Manthropocene, the overrepresentation of man, or even the problem of mounting an effective feminist response to the capitalist colonial conditions in which we, whoever we are, find ourselves today. What I want to do here is start somewhere else entirely, with plants, and with some of our relationships to them at this complicated, compromised geohistorical moment in order to begin to think about how our everyday lives in the Manthropocene could be just that little bit different, more attentive to the conditions that have got us to this very anxious now, more oriented to possibilities of living in and as what winter calls genres of humanity, more aware of the other beings with whom we share space as our collective record gets written into geological time. If this talk has only one takeaway, it's this. Living thoughtfully with plants in a feminist mode may help us acknowledge, understand, and begin to heal some of the multi-species violences that have been wrought in the name of man, a genre of the human from which we may, perhaps with a more vegetal orientation, now more strongly than ever, choose to dissociate. May 28, 2018. This afternoon, I spent the better part of two hours detangling the clematis that grows up the deck, of the, the deck on the back of my house in Toronto. Being a vine, a clematis will twine around anything that crosses its path, including itself, at all available opportunities. The result is often, even with a short period of gardener inattention, a snarly mess. The leaf stalks curl and curl in on themselves in order to find some purchase. In this situation, if you want to coax the vine to grow in a less tangly way, you have to unwind the intricate, ten the intricate tendrils very gently and place them, against a very, uh, place them very gently against a better climbing scaffold, a thin, a thin stick, a wire. 
And that is what I was doing this afternoon, slowly and carefully taking apart the knots and suggesting to each shoot a less tangled path up a new metal trellis. Although it's only May, I had to wait until the sun had passed over the deck and the clematis to do this work, or it would have been too baking hot. It was nearly 31 degrees Celsius this afternoon. I know that's nothing for here. Not quite record-breaking, but unseasonable for Toronto. Summers here are getting longer and hotter and winters warmer and more unpredictable. This year, the thermometer hit 16 degrees Celsius in February. That's in a Canadian city in which the historical average high for the month is minus three. In a year of large contrasts, there was also an exceptional storm in mid-April, complete with freezing rain and ice that turned roads and sidewalks to glass for days, and with such high winds that tens of thousands of homes were without power, and insurance companies threw up their hands at the number and severity of claims related to roof damage, including mine. Not much more than a month later, there is a heat alert for the city. This is enough drama to make even my least environmentally conscious friends make grumbling noises about climate change. The garden has suffered this year, especially the smaller, lower-growing plants, even some of the hardy, well-established lavenders packed it in. The problem is not that it was too cold, although it was in January, or that it was too warm in those double-digit February days, or that there was an ice storm in April in which some of the more precocious new shoots were frozen solid, or even that it is now 31 degrees Celsius in May. The problem is that all of these things happened in a remarkably short time span, and that longer-term climate changes have already begun to destabilize plant communities, making them more vulnerable to freak weather events. From my perspective as caretaker of this little plant community, the problem is also that many of the seasonal understandings that have been basic to gardening here can no longer be assumed. Lavender might not survive the winter without wrapping. Tomatoes might need to be shaded in order to survive what is forecast to be a brutal summer. Rains are changing. Plants that require specialist pollinators may find their calls unanswered because the short-lived insects on which they rely may now have lives out of sync with their blooms. There's a multitude of opinions about gardening in these times. Of course, many urban gardeners talk about how to protect their plants from climate change, shielding them from extreme temperatures, both hot and cold, conserving and or diverting water, planting a greater range of resilient species in more careful, cohabitative arrangements, and being extra aware of the presence of both predatory and pollinator insects. Some gardeners understand their work as itself a form of climate change mitigation getting rid of lawns that require mowing, planting carefully to preserve and foster biodiversity, moving toward organic and permaculture practices to decrease the use of chemical fertilizers, and favoring native species that know what resilience means in this place. Some are preparing for an intensified food security crisis, adopting flower beds for vegetables and planting fruit-bearing shrubs and trees for future sustenance. Many garden-minded folks are also looking outside their own backyards for spaces to reclaim for conscious cultivation, including waste places that might be turned into little botanical oases with just a little bit of guerrilla gardening care. 
I, for one, am a bit obsessed with the importance of the more weedy species that seem to be able to thrive in these times. Milkweed patches as refugia for seriously endangered monarch butterflies, mulberries as a prolific late June food source, nettles and dandelions as humus-forming healers of disturbance. To me, though, more than anything else, gardening in these times means two things. First, caretaking my little backyard demands that I pay close attention to the present and the future. What are the plants telling me about the ways the climate is changing? What do they need that I can give them? What do these needs tell me about the larger scale of the changes in which we are immersed? What can I do concretely in this small biotic community and beyond to mitigate change, to adapt to it, and even to resist it? Second, and perhaps more foundationally, the garden invites me to reflect on the past and present, on gardening itself, and how the particular plants that I'm tending are part of a larger process of colonial global transformation in which the histories of plant movements are bound up with those of capitalist fossil fuel developments. We can perhaps more easily think about cotton, wheat, sugarcane, and corn at this level plants that were central to slavery, to the rise of industrial agriculture, to the expansion of settler colonialism in the Canadian prairies, to what scholars following Alfred Crosby call ecological imperialism. But gardens are also part of this picture. Think about the clematis, for example. The dark purple sepaled specimen growing up my back deck is a Clematis jackmani, a specific cross with European and Chinese origins of an already pretty global species. The cross was first made by 19th century Eng English horticulturalist George Jackman. In fact, there are currently about 250 species of Clematis worldwide, but over 2,500 cultivars. This fact alone tells you quite a bit about this specific plant-human relationship. Although, although there have been clematis all over the world, including Australia, for far longer than there have been people, in North America, concoctions of both uh, clematis virginiana and clematis linguisticifolia are traditional treatments for venereal disease. And in Australia, um, different species of clematis are used um, variously as a poultice to relieve joint pain, and the leaves are crushed um, and, and sniffed for headaches. You don't really want to consume them because they're pretty uh, hallucinogenic as well. Um, but there's no question that the, the comparatively recent international spread of clematis jackmani stems from a history of British colonial botany and more recently capitalist horticultural trade, both of which have generally selected for showy masses of large blooms rather than, say, medicinal potency. Although on one hand you could argue that cultivation, including intentional hybridization, extends a certain kind of biodiversity, the fact is that many of the cultivars originate from a couple of particular species that are appealing according to a rather narrow set of aesthetic criteria. The resulting inbreeding has spread particular diseases like clematis wilt along the commercial paths of the horticultural trade. Moreover, the favoring of these showy cultivars by gardeners and industry means that less attention is being paid to clematis species that might excel in other ways and invite different modes of appreciation and relationship. What does it mean then to care for this Jack Manny in the midst of my Manthropocene garden when it is already so clearly implicated in the biopolitics of colonial botanical theft 
and specifically cap of capitalist modes of living with plants. Yes, we can plant and shelter and tend to gardens as acts to mitigate climate change and foster biodiversity. But we can also question and reflect and challenge these relationships that have brought these particular gardens into being as part of rather than as a refuge from climate changing times. Gardens are microcosms of the complicated and impure multi-species relationships that are, whether we like it or not, the world in which we are living, even as we may consciously refract and rework those relations into new possibilities. In my garden, this practice involves taking careful stock of the plants that are here, of the travels that have brought them here, and of the possibilities that here might yet bring about. One could say that women have botanized in this attentive manner for a very, very long time. In many traditions, women's work has long since included and continues to include paying close attention to plants as sources of food, medicine, textile, building material, decoration, and pleasure, and also as bellwethers of the health and resilience of the larger social and ecological communities of which they're part. Ethnobotanist Nancy Turner, for example, working with elders, describes that women of the Saanich and Songhees nations on the south coast of what is now Vancouver Island, Canada, were and are especially attentive to Kwetlal, in English, camas, a magnificent blue-flowering bulbous plant that is a prized delicacy and important traditional source of carbohydrate for Saanich, Songhees, and other Coast Salish peoples. For thousands of years, women leading children and small family groups would not only carefully harvest kwetlal, taking only the largest bulbs to pit roast into sweetness in the summer, but would also actively tend the best sites by careful hand clearing and by small scale burning, which creates the meadow habitats that the plants especially love. But camas are not just food. As Turner writes, the social acts of tending and harvesting and pit cooking were also vital sites for Coast Salish knowledge and cultural transmission between generations. Colonization has done a great deal of damage to Camas by overriding the meadows with houses, cattle, potatoes, and scotch broom, by banning broadcast burning, and by cleaving the plants from their knowledgeable tenders through dispossession and dishonored treaties. But women are still attending to Kwetlal as part of a practice of cultural, political, and ecological resurgence. As Songhees land manager Cheryl Bryce remarks, Riley, 200 years after contact, there is still a group of women crawling around on hands and knees in the lush green coastal meadows, pointing out certain plants and weeding others. Euro-Western traditions have not always been kind to women's plant attentions. As Lee Whaley describes, wise women's herbal, magical, medicinal knowledges had a long and rich tradition in early modern Europe, and especially in rural areas where their healing work was the medical mainstay of the poor. By the late 15th century, however, they came to be viewed as a threat as both botanical and medical knowledge and power came to be concentrated in and overseen by the systematizing and hierarchical hands of man. Women's work as village healers and midwives and their methods of healing through spells and potions made them vulnerable to attacks from the emerging medical profession, the state, and the church. Many were burned as witches. 
During the transatlantic slave trade, women's botanical knowledges were also suppressed. As historian Londa Scheibinger documents, slave women, drawing on knowledges from indigenous Caribbean communities, brewed local plants such as the peacock flower into an abortifacient to resist birthing their children into slavery. As German-born botanical adventurer and illustrator uh, Maria Sibylla Marion wrote in 1705 in an account of her travels to Suriname, the women use the seeds of the peacock flower to abort their children so that their children will not become slaves like they are. The black slaves have demanded to be well treated, threatening to refuse to have children. They told me this themselves. Despite Marion's attestation, these abortifacient plant knowledges did not reach Europe, even though the plants themselves were and are extensively grown as ornamentals in the same centers as a result of the growing trade in, gar growing trade in garden exotics. Pronatalist policies in, in both plantations and in Europe, combined with the professionalization and increasing male dominance of both medicine and botany, meant that the plant knowledges that were imported to Europe were not the ones that allowed women to control their fertility. As Marion's own example demonstrates, however, even within these Euro-Western traditions, some women were able, in the company of plants, to engage in forms of creative knowledge production that allowed them to participate in, and moreover, to subtly challenge the sexist world of colonial botany. As historian Anne Steyer has documented extensively, for example, in the 18th and early 19th centuries in England, women were very much involved in the period's general fascination with plants. However, with some notable exceptions like Marion, they tended to be engaged in plant-based activities that left them out of botanical history books that tended to be filled with male conquests, whether of territory or of taxonomy. Instead, many women appreciated plants through collection, gardening, and especially illustration, all of which were acceptable, even fashionable, activities for women. One of my favorites is Mary Delaney, who produced, starting at the age of 74, which gives me much hope for my own future, over 1,000 paper mosaics, which are cut, cutouts of plants based on dissections of actual flowers. These mosaics are extraordinary. Each piece of the plant is composed of multiple tiny pieces of cut paper layered fragment by fragment on a black background, highlighting the material relationship between the plant-based paper and the plant it is shaped to represent. These mosaics are also gloriously sexual. Delaney closely followed the work of Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, whose system of plant classification was based on a given, a given plant's relative numbers of male and female sex organs. It was completely wrong. As Lisa Moore has pointed out, Delaney's mosaics are not only scrupulously composed to demonstrate the Linnaean system, but also particularly lush in their colorful, unabashed revelations of the plant's individual sexual identities. Uh, a lot of floral painting at the time um, focused on, I'm being careful, on coy, uh, much more coyly composed uh, flowers and Delaney's, uh, they, they usually have uh, a bud, uh, a seed, and, but they always have a really big splayed flower. 
I think it's not at all a stretch to consider Delaney's flower mosaic practice as something more than the colonial botany with which it was intertwined. It is, I think, an extraordinarily attentive exploration of the sensuousness of plants, involving the plants themselves as paper, as sexual beings, as active participants in the process. This kind of material attentiveness also inspires the work of more recent artists, such as Lauren Magner, who has taken historical technologies associated with women's botanical art, such as flower pressing and cyanotyping, and transforming them into multiple forms of plant-based art. And there are so many plant-based feminist artists that I can't even begin to, 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 to begin to speak about them. I draw on the detailed work of feminist historians, ethnobotanist, eth ethnobotanists, traditional knowledge keepers, and botanical artists and activists, not to posit some grand narrative of women's closeness to plants. As you can see, even these few examples show very large differences that make it impossible to think that all women, or all plants, are involved or interested in the same kind of relating. Rather, I share these stories in order to help formulate a question. What does it mean to think about feminist relationships to plants? Especially in the midst of the current proliferation of research about plant intelligence and plant communication, in which popular science and culture seem suddenly to have discovered that plants are something other than raw materials for human activity and have forms of perception and awareness that are different from, and in some ways exceed, our own, what difference does it make to take a feminist perspective on both emerging and far older practices of plant knowledge and relationship? What can feminist critics of the Manthropocene learn from these stories of women's involvements with plants as practices of sustenance, relationship, pleasure, and even resistance? I'd like to suggest that these stories tell us at least two important things about feminist vegetal entanglements. First, it makes very little sense to talk about plants as if they were somehow a coherent category of beings with a uniform set of qualities or with whom one can have a relationship, good or bad. Quetnal is not, says Alpenia, is not corn. And a feminist botany needs to pay attention to each in its vegetal, temporal, historical, and geographical specificity in order to, be, to begin to get at the messy question of living together in less destructive ways. This may seem like a really obvious point, but one of the things that man has done especially effectively is solidify a hierarchy of lives with white men at the top and plants and fungi at the bottom, rocks having been declared as altogether non-lives, which is a different story. In the process of becoming raw material for the Manthropocene, plants become homogenized as mere photosynthesizing matter which allows man, and now particularly capital, to transform that matter into all manner of useful commodities without regard to any capacities of the plant other than the desired qualities that are to be extracted from it. This process both magically erases the plant's specificity as a living being and replaces its complex singularity with an almost entirely instrumental understanding of its value as a food, pharmaceutical, building material, fuel, paper source, landscaping mainstay, or pretty ornamental. Plants that are instrumentally useful are cultivated intensively and their wealth extracted as fully as possible. 
Plants that are not are killed as weeds or as invasives, their lives not worthy of consideration in any form. And of course, both sets of bioindustrial practices make billions of dollars a year for Monsanto. And so second, in order to work against the grain, so to speak, of this commodification, a feminist botany needs to attend to the specificities of plant lives that lie below the surface of their exchange value and to consider that plants are entwined with us in a variety of relationships that bind us together in ways that may include, but that also exceed, challenge, and complicate use. Many indigenous plant traditions, of course, are based on relations of reciprocity rather than extraction. As Potawatomi botanist Robin Kimmerer emphasizes, plants such as sweetgrass thrive with thoughtful human, human intervention, and harvesting is only one element in a much larger set of practices in which people attend to the needs of the plant just as much as the plant provides for the needs of the people. Although settler feminist gardeners like me have a great deal to learn from these ongoing traditions, however, there are also other places in which to cultivate attentive reciprocity. I would argue that organic gardening, community-based agriculture, permaculture, and even some kinds of ecological restoration offer models of place-based plant attentiveness that are, while clearly not immune from imperatives toward capitalist biopolitics, sites in which more sustainable and resilient plant intimacies might emerge. At the very least, I'd like us to notice the difference between experimental testing for evidence of plant intelligence as a way of providing yet another reason for the commodified uptake of plant capacities and the embodied cultivation of relationships between plants and people in which we are aware of the, inter of the interdependence of the intelligences involved. Concerto for Scotch Broom. This is set on Vancouver Island. Allegro Precipitando. They say that in the 1840s, Sir James Douglas himself carried Scotch broom seeds in his pockets to scatter over the streets of the new Fort Victoria, that he had visions of a pastoral British paradise when he first spotted the carefully tended Lekwungen camas meadows among the oak trees at Mikan that he secured his colonial Eden by any means necessary, military, legal, political, architectural, botanical, that other settlers also clothed their naked acquisitions in brightly flowering Scots sentimentalities of broom, gorse, and thistle. They say that some settlers were less interested in the picturesque, that broom was a cure for dropsy and a remedy for bleeding after childbirth, that it was a source of tannins and that different parts of the plant could be used for brown, yellow, and green dyes, that the flowers pickled were a delicacy, that in the absence of hops, broom made beer nicely bitter and even more intoxicating, and obviously that you can make brooms with it. They say that broom arrived in the ballasts of ships and spread through streams and rivers, that it was deliberately planted along roadsides and in hydro corridors to stabilize catastrophized soils. They imply but never quite say that broom was an important element of colonial infrastructure. They also say that broom has its own colonial desires, that its thousands of ripe ballistic pods shoot seeds up to 20 feet away summer after summer 
that its seeds can live in the soil for decades, that its waxy stems can photosynthesize even when, it's, when it needs to drop its leaves in drought, that it pulls nitrogen from the air to fix its own supply in otherwise poor soil. They say that broom is an aggressive, invasive settler in the often dry, thin microregions of its flourishing, that it is a fire hazard, that it is toxic, that it is impenetrable, that its roots are too tenacious, that it is, ironically, an eyesore. They say that broom should be busted, blasted, blitzed, and bashed to create space for indigenous plants in precious spaces like oak meadows. Not many say as much about creating spaces for the first people who tended the plants and the fires that made the meadows possible in the first place. I have taken to say that broom is a companion species in dispossession, but that, that it has done its own settling rather more aggressively than anyone intended. That broom is an indicator of very wrong relations that it invites us to a large conversation. Andante Lacrimoso, the long slope of the hill, long logged, burned, gouged, shattered, is alight with delicate and unmistakably leguminous yellow flowers awaiting bees. New spring branches scratch, resinous old bushes invite fire, Elaborate root chemistries give rise only to grass, and even the deer won't eat it, though the sheep will. Extreme drought and rapid change favor global opportunists, like other travelers who wear layers of Gore-Tex and bring their own freeze-dried food. Broom is an individualist with a sense of entitlement and not much obvious interest in neighborly relations. Wet winter, dry summer, heat, fire, earlier blooming, longer seeding, accelerating time space, and no end in sight for the logging, burning, gouging, shattering, euphemistically called disturbance. This busted land calls out in bright May blooms for deeper care, for story, and for love. Rondo con spirito. Damage has created novel ecosystems, and the plants are slowly adapting. Scotch broom can be controlled mechanically by cutting it down with a chainsaw at the point its main trunk appears above the soil. How we approach restoration of land depends on what we believe that land means. Land as sustainer, land as identity, land as grocery store and pharmacy, land as moral obligation, land as sacred, land as self. The plant will often not die on the first attempt, and vigilant shearing is necessary. Restoration is imperative for healing the earth, but reciprocity is imperative for long-lasting, successful restoration. The application of glyphosate herbicides has demonstrated some success in killing broom, but the treatment must be applied before the flowers emerge. We restore the land, and it restores us. Experiments are underway with biological controls, such as certain species of seed weevils whose larvae enter the pods and eat the seeds before they can disperse. Especially in an era of rapid climate change, species composition may change, but relationship endures. Cut broom and bloom. Restoring the land without restoring relationship is an empty exercise.
At the end of her recent book, Against Purity, philosopher Alexis Shotwell offers an unusual perspective on climate change, which I think helps us bring our intricate, complicated feminist plant relationships back to the larger question of the age of man. As an alternative to more epochal and apocalyptic accounts, she writes, citing Elizabeth Pavanelli, that global warming is ordinary, chronic, and cruddy. It is more like the everyday radiation emitted in the course of a nuclear reactor's life than it is the experience of a nuclear bomb. But it is also catastrophic, world-shaping, and hard to respond to in its entirety. The Anthropocene is like that. It is both geological and intimate, inhering in everything from the mundane act of getting on a plane in Vancouver to fly to Sydney, to traces of carbonized fossil fuels that our highly mobile technoculture will leave for distant future worlds to ponder, and back to the 75 precariously housed people in Quebec, Canada, who have lacking access, adequate access to cooler spaces died in the last couple of weeks because of the unprecedented heat and humidity. Whatever we call it, the processes and relations that coagulate into the idea of the Anthropocene are already here. But because this age of man is not a singularity, not made or experienced equitably, and occurs simultaneously on multiple temporal and spatial scales, I follow a group of feminist thinkers, Shotwell, Pavanelli, Singh, Donna Haraway, Maria Puig de la Bella Casa, into a place where we think not about somehow avoiding ruin, but about ethics and politics as entangled with the mundane, everyday particularities of living in blasted landscapes, as Singh calls them. The age of man is an age of ruin, to be sure, but ruins can yet be spaces of possibility, especially when we follow older feminist currents of thinking against the grain of man's arrogant overrepresentations. Here, what Haraway calls affirmative biopolitics and Bella Casa alter biopolitics focuses on recognizing our precarious embodied entanglements with multi-species others and responding to them with generosity and attentiveness despite or perhaps because of the fact that our lives together are both thoroughly and inequitably compromised by colonialism, capitalism, and multiple forms of environmental degradation. Shotwell reminds us, the differential implication and harm of global warming of the Anthropocene as an, as an object for action means that individual action will never be sufficient to address what needs to be addressed. But that doesn't mean that there isn't space to practice ways of living together that might give rise to flourishing, to life in the ruins, and even to larger scale possibilities for solidarity and justice. I think our relationship with plants are a particularly good, if certainly not the only, place to start this kind of practice. For one thing, the sheer act of noticing plants as plants, let alone as specific kinds of plants, will come as a surprise to the overwhelming number of people in our highly urbanized world who do not notice plants at all. James Wandersee and Elizabeth Schusler have coined the term plant blindness to, to refer to the malady suffered by those for whom the entire ancient vegetal kingdom is at best a vaguely green backdrop to human movement until a plant does something pretty dramatic to call our attention to it, like drop a heavy branch onto the roof of a car during an ice storm. More deeply, 
focusing on plant-human relations as sites of active caretaking, in which we take care in multiple senses, allows us to think of ourselves as responsible for maintaining good relationships with plants. As Balacasa writes, everyday care is a necessary activity to the maintenance of every world. Taking care here means at once accepting that responsibility, proceeding cautiously with it, actively practicing it, and also recognizing that in plant-human relationships, humans aren't the only ones doing the caring. Plants are our caretakers as well. In a highly stratified world in which the everyday work of caring for plants is removed from most people's everyday lives, indeed it's increasingly outsourced to a class of hyper-exploited agricultural, nursery, and landscaping workers, a focus on plant caretaking is a way of bringing plant-human relationships back into our notice. Again, as ecofeminists have said for quite a long time, not noticing that our multi-species worlds can only be sustained through reciprocal caretaking is part of the problem that allows care to be considered women's work and not an element of man's aspiration. The result in the age of man is the externalization of all that caring work through enforced patriarchy, racist forms of globalized servitude, and biological and technological manipulation. Finally, rather than imagine that all of this plant noticing and caretaking will lead to some kind of revolution of the vegetariat, although I like the idea, I propose spreading as an appropriate metaphor for the dissemination of resistant, drought-tolerant, resilient feminist botanical practices in the Anthropocene. There is no capital G garden to go back to, no place where we can somehow find a tree of knowledge that will offer us the master key for multi-species harmony, there are, however, even in this age of man, multiple gardens, places where we can, caretaking thoughtfully with plants, begin to revegetate the world with practices that are attentive to how we got here, as well as to the new relationships we can imagine here. What we can do is share tips on what works on and in the ground. We can trade good gardening stories. We can share multi-species practices that defy the logics of intensification, extract extraction, commodification, and extermination. We can slow down and admire each other's handiwork, take cuttings, save seeds, and share best practices from multiple traditions. We can learn to listen to plants in many languages. And then, when we look into the ruins, Perhaps we can both mourn the devastating loss of life that man has wrought and also help what remains to flourish. Thank you. minutes, maybe about 15 minutes for questions. Um, so. Oh, and we have microphones too, so. Yeah. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for that talk. It was amazing. Um, I'm really interested in the performative element of your talk this evening. Um, so you kind of switch from your academic mode of speech 
sort of halfway through, or maybe three quarters of the way through, and then it became more song-like, more like a concerto, I suppose. So is that kind of performative way of delivering this material to us, um, is that, what does that mean in terms of feminism, your feminist approach, mm -hmm. I suppose? That's what I'd like to know. Thanks. There were, there were two more creative pieces. The one is a little e more easily disguised. The, the, the bit about the clematis was actually a, um, a composed the way that one would, uh, it was originally, a, a, it was in the manner of a gardener's journal, um, which, which has a particular kind of narrative form that, that starts on a particular day, that talks about a particular activity. Um, and then moves off, uh, moves off from there. Um, and there are some beautiful literary examples. Um, one that got completely excised from the talk is uh, Jamaica Kincaid's book, My Garden Book, which I highly recommend um, as an example of you know, sort of feminist post-colonial garden writing. Um, the, the concerto was very, uh, was, was very much, um, um, the, I, I wanted the form to, be a kind of response to the way that the plant gets talked about. Um, so there is um, sort of this a flurry of, of different of different kind of knowledge uh, knowledges of where broom came from. Um, we know that it we know that it came from Europe, um, but its precise route of coming to uh, coming to the west coast of BC is actually unknown. Um, and there's there's a variety of different kinds of stories that get told about it, and that that struck me as um, it sort of gave rise to, to the the idea of of a symphonic form, a polyvocal form. Um, and I uh, I also um, am. As a, as a sort of as, as, a, as a white settler gardener trying to figure out what is the most respectful way of, in, of incorporating indigenous voices without trying to make them um, without trying to appear like I should simply say the same thing so I, I wanted to I wanted to to show some some, some distance um, from all of those works which seem to work better um, with that kind of form um, the 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 the, poet, the poetic piece in the middle um, is is also very much about the fact that I have I have I have feelings about all of this, um, uh, and they are and they are they are quite conflicted. Um, and there is a, there's a it's a, the the middle piece the andante is written about a very very specific place um, where there is an annual broom bust. Um, and I can't. I, I really. I, I find some of the language of uh, in, invasive species removal really part of the problem. Um, but it's a, it's a very particular place that has been uh, incredibly, really, really, really badly logged, um, and then left it left as a ruin. And then um, the uh, there, there was an enormous fire. Um, it's one, one of the, it was, it was a, there was a wildfire. The, the, the landscape droughts every summer, so fires are actually part of the landscape. But this was this was an out of an out of control fire, um, and then it was gouged again by the fire trucks coming in, and then it was poisoned by all of the chemicals that were put down to um, um, to suppress the fire. Um, and then um, it's it's in the process of, of of despite this this being such an absolutely abused piece of land, um, the first thing that the first thing that happened um, about two years after the fire was that it was a light in foxgloves, uh, digitalis 
you have foxgloves. Do you have foxgloves here? You have foxgloves here. So it was a light in pink and pink and white digitalis. It was quite it was quite extraordinary. And now uh, the the process of succession is the the broom is coming along, which is also participating. Uh, and the broom is, is is a leguminous plant, so it's actually participating in re-nitrogen, re-nitrogenating, uh, giving nitrogen back into the soil. Um, so it is actually it is actually participating in the process of healing of of, of healing the land of, of giving of giving some nu- nutrition back to the to the soil and yet it is absolutely reviled. So I feel um, so utterly devastated in this landscape, not just because of what has happened to it, but because of the, the violences that continue to be inflicted. That the that the poetic form actually seemed to capture that in far fewer words than it took me to just explain it to you. <laughs> But I, but I do think that there is, you know, the, the larger question of uh, form um, for feminist writing is a very large question. I think academic, I think, um, I think we're witnessing witnessing an explosion of different ways of expressing um, complex, uh, you know, sort of complex feminist concepts uh, in ways that don't separate um, uh, feeling from 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 rationality that actually use form as a way of, of not not having to not having to say absolutely everything and actually allowing the words um, the words to uh, to carry part of the meaning in um, um, in 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 eco in eco poetics um, which is something that I that I that I do in my spare time. Um, that 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 has really influenced the way that I that I think about writing what I want to write. Yes. Um, thank you so much for that talk. It was wonderful. Um, this is going to sound a little bit. Um, awkward, but what I was wondering about from as a feminist statement in the visualization of the plants, and it's nearly always the flowers that are expressing all of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about your thoughts on all the other parts of plants and mm-hmm. the roots, and then with trees, the flowers are so high, of course, we're not seeing them. Mm-hmm. And um, Yes, I'm just wondering about yep. your thoughts about yep. that. Um, you've, I, I, I mentioned that it's 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 um, it's useless to speak about plants as a as a as a coherent category, and there are there are uh, I, 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 at the same time as I say that I've very clearly demonstra- demonstrated my bias toward angiosperms. So there are there there's a certain absence of coniferous plants um, in in my talk. There's a certain absence of trees in my talk. I've I've sort of conf- confined it to things that have bright showy blooms. Um, guilty. Um, but 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 no, it it, it is a, it is absolutely true. Um, I think you know, sort of for 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 um, um, d- even the the even the the bit of Delaney that I showed, these are these are um, these these are not the whole image. Um, I'm sure you know that they're that they're they're the roots. There are other forms of the flowers, um, and different um, different. Um, uh, there are different conventions of visual representation for different uh, different historical periods, and the 
the focus on the flowers was actually part of the, the, Linnaean, the, the, the Linnaean move. Um, but um, you know, others others would focus on uh, the, the 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 property the, the 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 part of the plant that had the, the property that we were looking at. Um, so in the, the 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 theory of signatures, for example, the visual representation would actually probably focus on the part of the plant that was seen to resemble the thing that it was giving back to the people. Um, there, so there, I, I'm not entirely sure that the. Um, the visualization, the visualization, like the, the 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 thing about the flowers is that you actually don't have to pull the plant out to draw it, um, in order to get to the roots. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other traditions of you know, sort of botanical representation that that do pull the whole plant out, and in fact the whole plant is, is sort of splayed in its entirety. Um, so I think that there, it's not it's not that the, I don't think the, that the representation of the flower is necessarily doing any more or any less violence to the plant than any other visual representation. Um, but, because um, there, there are also, you know, other, like Lawrence, whoops, I just did it again. Sorry, it, it doesn't matter. Um, the, uh, the, the cyanotype that I showed, um, the uh, Anna Atkins um, did cyanotypes of algae, uh, specifically seaweeds. Um, and she would she displayed the whole plant. Uh, Lauren's work is on she's she's working on ferns and bryophytes, and she's actually and and they 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 appear differently, but the, but her fern images are just are, are leaves primarily. Um, that I, doesn't I, I that doesn't answer that, your question. I, sorry, no, I wasn't <laughs> actually saying that in any as a critique in any way. Why are they? Any, I guess what I'm asking is that um, of course there's this really famous book now about the secret life. Trees that sort of that's been written by this forester and everything, and I'm wondering if because it's mainly botanical art by women that has been flowers, and it's and we can see why. I mean, it's an extraordinary visual, you know, thing to engage with, and I'm just wondering if there is, if you think there is an association with um, the flowers, the more feminist statement, and then the tree like the male statement. I mean, I know it's mm -hmm. a very simplification, but I'm just curious about that, thoughts of that. I think that it, it is possible that the, 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 there, there, there's a way in which certain kind that 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 little tiny flowery little flower beings uh, and gardens have been understood in a certain. It, it, there is a line of thought of, of women's work and, and feminist thought that runs through domestic gardens and and herb and, and herbalism um, that is more feminine. Yeah. Um, there's. If, if I can sort of sort of veer off into a into a bit of a story, um, in in the city of in the city of Toronto, which is a very heavily forested, there, there's a very significant urban canopy, um, and the the trees in the city are actually counted individually. There's a, there's a tree census, uh, and I discovered through the work of um, uh, of a former student uh, in our faculty, um, who. Um, Started a started an organization called Not Far from the Tree, which uh, pairs groups of gleaners with people with uh, with laden fruit trees, 
um, to, to pick and then share the harvest, which is an amazing organization. Um, but she discovered, much to her chagrin, that the fruit trees are not counted in the Toronto tree census uh, because they're, they're backyard domestic private space trees. So I do, I do think that there's a private public thing going on. And isn't it interesting that the, the trees that, that, that give food, the trees that are, that are the fruit, the trees that are part of the garden, don't count as real trees. And, and she proceeded to produce a map of all the fruit trees in yeah. Toronto, which yeah. is quite beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Laura Rinesborough is her name, given that this is going to be podcast. Say any more uh, to us about you. You mentioned in your, your first sort of um, creative intervention, um, thinking about uh, ways in which uh, histories of um, globalization, labor, capitalism, gender are woven into the plants in our gardens as a kind of response to climate change and the Anthropocene. Um, are there ways in which you think that might be, those histories might be made more visible in the gardening community or for the gardening community in a way that might? Um, uh, yeah, I guess bring them to the surface in a way that might be interesting or creative or provocative. Mm -hmm. Are there people doing that? Maybe? Yeah. There are, um, <laughs> I'm sure if there are gardeners in the audience, there are many different kinds of gardeners. Um, and there are folks um, who insist on um, planting only indigenous species, like they, they that that's it. That's the only, um, you know, that the the, the 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 work of the angels is actually to repopulate the city with the species that should be here. Um, as as many of you know, as many other people will say, well, that horse left the barn a really really long time ago, um, and they focus primarily on. Um, you know, sort of planting, planting what is beautiful, what is showy, uh, which is largely what is exotic. Um, and those, those two communities don't talk together very much, which was part of the part of which, which so, so when, I, when I was creating my, um, you need to go there, otherwise I'll end up talking to you. <laughs> Um, when I when I was my, my garden is actually relatively recent. It's only it's only a five year old garden. Um, yes, five. Um, and when I was when I when I was deciding how, and it was it was a sorry patch of lawn with a piece of concrete and a really nasty shed in it, and it was it was it was really pretty hideous. Um, but it was it was a bit of a blank, it was a bit of a blank slate. So it was you know trying to figure out what kind of garden do I want to have, um, what kind of what kind of community do I want to have. I decided that I wanted to uh, I wanted to incorporate uh, both native plants. Well, not both. I wanted I wanted a vegetable garden. I wanted a native plant garden, and I wanted um, um, some flowers that I happen to love. Um, and I took the license. Uh, the, one of the reasons that I love Jamaica Kincaid is that she's completely un unapologetic. That the stuff that goes in her garden is the stuff that she loves, um, even though um, as she's she's from Antigua. Um, even though she recognizes that some of the flowers that she has in her garden followed her, you know, sort of followed her ancestors on the slave trade. 
So those two communities of gardeners do not talk very well together. Um, there, are the sh there, are, there are show gardeners and there are, and there are native plant gardeners and they tend to be purists. Um, and my desire in doing this work is to actually is to actually begin to get people to, to, to begin to get people in small you know through through gardening clubs through the Toronto uh, through through botanical gardens to actually begin to talk to one another about um, you know, sort of these histories of of, of, botan of, of botany as a site of contact um, and not just botany as a site of contact then, but botany is a continuing site of contact. What does, it, what does it mean to plant these different kinds of plants? Where do they come from? How do, the, um, how do the roots of the plants get traced into the city? How is the city marked by the different, uh, the, the different paths that these plants have taken? Because there are also plants um, that clearly accompanied, uh, like Toronto, Toronto's a very multicultural city, uh, there, are, there are very particular plants that mark um, different neighborhoods. Um, so there, there, are, there are certain kinds of very old, beautiful climbing roses that were part of the um, Italian immigration to the city. Um, and it's, it's important to be able to tell, tell the, the, the stories about botanical relation, uh, about a, a variety of different layers of botanical relationships. So it's not just the, the, the white people, sort of the, the, the stuffy white gardeners with their really pretty clematis, um, and the native plant gardeners. There's, there's a variety of different botanical relationships happening in there. There's a very beautiful book um, by Vin, Vin, Vincenzo Pietropolo, which is about immigrant, immigrant gardens in Toronto, which begins to actually explore some of those relationships as well. But it would be great to get more gardeners to think about where their plants actually came from. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.